John Malcolm, the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, overseeing the Heritage Foundation's work to increase understanding of the Constitution and the rule of law. John recently wrote an article which had appeared in the Daily Signal, which is the publication of the Heritage Foundation. He writes at the beginning of this article, it will be tough, if not impossible, for the Supreme Court to top the 21-22 term when it comes to both drama and the results that please the conservative legal community. The three words that best describe the Supreme Court's decision this term are text, history, and tradition, or better said, originalism rules and that's a good thing. John, welcome to News and Views. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to be with you. So your article highlights nine cases that the Supreme Court will hear in this upcoming term. Interestingly, two of those cases involve North Carolina. Um, Before we get into some of the details of all this, what are the total number of cases that uh, SCOTUS will hear in an average one-year term? Yeah, it's up to them. It's dropped over the last several years, but typically it's somewhere around 65 cases, get up to about 70. And so far they have decided to hear 25 cases. So there's still a lot more cases that they will take to fill their docket. They come back, they will begin oral arguments the first Monday in October, but starting next week, they will come back and review all of the petitions for certiorari that have gathered over the summer for what's called the long conference. So I expect that next week they will add a few more cases to their docket, and we will all be waiting with bated breath to see what those cases are. As those cases are decided upon the Supreme Court, now obviously if they go over everything that came in over the summer, there will probably be a, a, a surge. After that, is it a fairly even sequence as they trickle out what they're going to hear the rest of the year? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's sometimes emergency cases that come up and they decide to hear them on an expedited basis. But yeah, they'll continue to get cert petitions and they'll continue to take cases probably until the early 2023. They'll stop hearing oral arguments, typically at the end of April, sometime into May or early May. And then they, they issue all of their opinions, usually by the end of June, might stop over a day or two in July before they jet off for their various summer plans. But I've heard it said that even though they don't release them until June, they pretty much, uh, do they go in and immediately take a vote after the oral argument that's not binding necessarily, uh, and then they assign who the, in the majority who is going to write the opinions? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah so the way this goes, and, and it is often the case that the most contentious cases are uh, are released at the end of the term because people are writing concurrences and lengthy dissents and responding to each other. So they'll hear oral arguments in a particular week. Then they will gather at the end of the week in the conference room, starting with the chief justice going all the way down to the most junior justice. They will give their very quick opinions as to how they think the case ought to uh, be resolved. Uh, you're right. No, until the opinion is issued, no one is committed and they can change their votes. And sometimes that they do, the first Obamacare case being a prominent example of that. If the chief justice is in the majority, the chief justice gets to assign who writes the opinion. If the chief justice is not in the majority, then the senior most justice who is in the majority gets to assign that opinion. So, for instance, in the Dobbs case, which is the case that overturned Roe versus Wade, the chief justice was not in the majority. So Clarence Thomas was the most senior justice in the majority, and he assigned that opinion to Samuel Alito. Makes sense. 
Well, if there was a silver lining to the Dobbs case, I think everybody learned a little bit more about how the uh, Supreme Court works. But getting back to your your article on these nine cases yeah. that the Supreme Court will hear in this upcoming term, uh, we know that the, the Supreme Court is leaning fairly strongly to the right. I mean, there's a couple of ifs, John Roberts and Kavanaugh. Uh, you know, sometimes they let precedent take a... Uh, a higher authority over what I would say common sense. That's just my opinion. But as as you looked at these nine cases that you examined closely, is there a pattern that substantiates the fact that this court is leaning to the right these days? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there is no question that for the first time in my lifetime, there are a majority of the Supreme Court justices would describe themselves as originalists mm-hmm. uh, and textualists, and that certainly was the case last year. So originalists believe that when you look at constitutional cases, you shouldn't just sort of impose, impose your own uh, personal uh, beliefs onto the Constitution. You should try to divine what the understanding was by the public uh, at the time those constitutional provisions were ratified. Textualists follow the text of a the statute. They don't tend to look behind the text to try to divine some kind of legislative meaning based on you know, hearings that may have taken place before Congress. They stick to the text that was actually passed by both houses of Congress and ratified uh, by, uh, by the president or signed by the president. Um, you know, here they've taken up a couple of very, very big, two or three very big cases, uh, two of them, one of them out of North Carolina, this hard, the challenge to Harvard's admissions policies and UNC's admissions policies. Uh, because of explicit racial preferences that they use on those policies. That's a big case. Court will consider both of those. Then there's another, as you mentioned, big case, an election law case out of North Carolina, Moore versus Harper, in which the court will determine so that the North Carolina legislature passed after the 2020 census its redistricting plan. And the, the, Cal- the North Carolina Supreme Court said that it was uh, done on the basis of partisan gerrymandering and violated the state constitution. The Supreme Court had already determined that partisan gerrymandering does not violate the federal constitution, but there is a provision in the U.S. Constitution called the Elections Clause that says the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So the question is, could that federal constitutional provision preclude the North Carolina Supreme Court from you know, throwing out the, the legislature's map? Uh, on the basis of a violation of the state constitution. And then there's another big case that has both free speech implications uh, and religious freedom implications out of Colorado, sort of picks up where a case from a couple of turns ago involving a baker named uh, Jack Phillips in Masterpiece Cake Shop left off. Uh, Here a web designer wants to expand her Colorado business to do graphic designs and web designs for weddings, but her religious beliefs preclude her from doing, you know, doing that for same-sex weddings. There's Colorado human rights law that says you've got to do that, uh, and the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not this violates this web designer's free speech rights. She, one, one does not want to be compelled to tacitly approve of the same-sex marriage, so she's arguing that the government is putting words into her mouth tacitly, and also she wants to put up a statement on her website saying why she won't uh, service same-sex weddings because it violates the tenets of her sincerely held religious belief, and she's being precluded from doing that. So the Supreme Court has said they're not going to take up whether or not this violates the free exercise clause, 
but they will take up whether this violates the free speech clause. Both of those are contained in the First Amendment. Well, it certainly is a free speech issue. And let me ask you a question related to that. The, the young lady that has the uh, web design business is named Lori Smith. Yep. Yep. And, and you're right. In many ways, it, um, it is similar to Baron L. Stutzman, the florist from uh, the state yes. of Washington, and Jack Phillips, the baker from the state of Colorado. Yep. Does this, do you think the Supreme Court on this let, – let's just assume that um, Lori Smith prevails in this and they're writing their opinion. Does, does the Supreme Court need to come down a little bit with a little bit more of a strong directive uh, to the lower courts and these state courts? Because, and the reason why I say that is if you, if you look at the inference of the Jack Phillips case – uh, they, and again, I know they, you know, you, you bring your case to the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court goes back and tells the state commission, you erred, go back and redo, uh, your, your decision. Uh, and right. I understand that the Supreme Court doesn't want to come down with a hammer, but yet when you have the same state come back again and come after Lori Smith with a very similar scenario, uh, does the Supreme – do you think the Supreme Court ever considers that as like Colorado, you're back again with another case that's almost identical? Well, there's no question with respect to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. The majority opinion was written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, and they really ducked the main issue. Uh, they got seven justices to say, well, when Jack Phillips was before this Colorado Human Rights Commission or whatever – yes, Colorado Civil Rights Commission – they were really biased. They showed a lot of hostility to his religious beliefs. That was an unfair process. And they, they ruled in his favor and basically said, go back and try again. Well, these people aren't idiots. They're not going, the next time they have a hearing, they're not going to say anything that's overtly hostile to somebody's religion, but they rule against them anyway. So now I think that the court will pick up where the Masterpiece Cake Shop case left off, and I think they will reach the main issue. They just won't do it on free exercise of religion grounds, they will do it on the basis of whether or not this is a compelled statement uh, expressing support for a same-sex marriage and precluding her from entering an explicit statement expressing her objections to doing that. How similar is this case to the Baron L. Stutzman case? And the Supreme Court turned down Baron L. Stutzman. They didn't hear her case. Uh, will this have an effect on her situation? Well, I think that case, Baron L. Stutzman case, has been settled. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the terms of the settlement were. I mean, look, it's very expensive to engage in litigation, and it's tough on your life. Uh, you know, you're on the front pages of the paper all the time, and people both <laughs> in favor of you and against you are, are, are confronting you all the time. It is the same issue. The only difference is one is a web designer, and she was a florist, and Jack Phillips was, you know, making custom cakes. They're all the same issue. It's that the, the civil rights community, the LGBT community, wants to compel everybody to Bingo. serve them uh, for their same-sex wedding. Yeah, all these people are perfectly willing to say, look, I'll design a website for you. I don't care whether you're gay or right. not, or any other occasion other than for your same-sex marriage. But that's not, that's not good enough for the people who want to advance a particular agenda. But they're all the same issue. Let me bring you back to these uh, North Carolina cases. Let's talk a little bit about yep. uh, the, the MAPS case. In 2019, Rucho versus Common Cause, you write in your article, the Supreme Court held that partisan gerrymandering does not violate the U.S. Constitution. Um, right. The state Supreme Court 
held that the map adopted by the legislature violated North Carolina's constitutional guarantee to its citizens to substantially equal voting power. In fact, they, they, the North Carolina Supreme Court actually goes in the North Carolina Constitution where, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically it talks about the state shall have free elections. And from that, they contrive that this is a violation of the, of the Constitution. And in fact, our Constitution here in the state of North Carolina also uh, is very similar to the federal Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, when it comes to the fact that the legislature will be in charge of, of uh, deciding uh, these uh, election laws. I would think this case ought to be a poster child for judicial malfeasance. I mean, you've got the Rucho case, you've got the uh, North Carolina Constitution, you've got the U.S. Constitution, and yet four activist judges on the North Carolina Supreme Court said, nah, we don't care, we're going to do what we darn well please. Well, there certainly were four activist judges. I mean, you know, who knew that that, uh, that an election that guarantees substantially equal legislative representation means that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. I assume the North Carolina Constitution has been around for quite some time, yes. and nobody ever found this. So the Supreme Court in the Rucho case said, look, partisan gerrymandering is in a long part of our history. In fact, the phrase gerrymandering came from in our early days, one of our founders of one of our founders of our country, Eldridge Jerry, was the governor of Massachusetts. He was later vice president, and he drew up a, a, a congressional map that looked at people like a salamander. The people said, "Eldridge Jerry salamander, gerrymandering." That's where the phrase actually mm. comes from. Uh, and you know, I, yes, there is the elections clause. This deviled. Uh, the Trump administration, or, or, or Donald Trump, I should say, when he was running in 2020, because you had a lot of federal judges, state court judges, executive branch officials changing election laws that had been passed by the legislature using the pandemic as the excuse for doing so. In a few cases, the legislature ratified it. In most cases, they didn't. Uh, and that has so, you know, that caused a lot of problems. Uh, and getting some kind of guidance from the Supreme Court. Uh, about whether it is okay for a state court to change the election laws, and if so, under what circumstances, will be very a very welcome development. We're talking to John Malcolm. He is the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies from the Heritage Foundation. John, going over to the other North Carolina case, the UNC Harvard Court case, I know there have been previous uh, cases that have uh, addressed student body affirmative action, uh, which these universities label as they're trying to achieve student body diversity. Would um, any of these past decisions that have come before uh, the federal courts, and has there ever been a a similar case that came before the Supreme Court? I think there was one back in the early 2000s, wasn't there? Yes. So the, the, the court is going to consider whether to overturn its 2003 decision in Grutter versus Bollinger, which involved the University of Michigan Law School's racial preferences admissions policies. In that case, very controversial, uh, the Supreme Court said that obtaining you know, a diverse student body could be a compelling interest and that if, if it was part of a holistic approach, that one could consider race as a thumb on the scale, so long as it was very narrowly tailored. You had to consider race-neutral admissions policies. You couldn't have a quota. Uh, and here, 
uh, this lawsuit against Harvard, a private college, and the lawsuit against University of North Carolina, a public university, uh, are saying, look, this is essentially BS, that these are really de facto quota systems that dramatically benefit African-American applicants, dramatically disadvantage primarily Asians who apply to these schools. There's nothing narrowly tailored about it. This is an explicit racial preference policy, uh, and that it runs afoul in the case of, of uh, Harvard University, uh, the 14th Amendment, or, or I'm sorry, in the case of the Northern University of North Carolina, the 14th Amendment, it's state action. And in the case of Harvard College, Title VI, which says that if you accept any federal funds whatsoever, you can't engage in racial discrimination. And I, you know, we will see how the Supreme Court comes out, but I am optimistic that they are indeed going to revisit Grutter uh, and uh, and overturn it. You talked before about conservatives sometimes not trusting Chief Justice Roberts. I understand why you say that. But on this issue, he's been very solid. He wrote in a case once called Parents Involved that the best way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And so, But a lot of eyes on the Supreme Court when these cases are argued on Halloween. That's interesting. Uh, John, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, just one last question as it relates to the Supreme Court and uh, especially this UNC Harvard case. And that is how I, – I, I'm sorry to sound so cynical, but <laughs> I'm 68 years old. I've been a conservative all my life, and you, you learn to get cynical over these things. I have no faith that these universities, even if the Supreme Court says, no, that's unconstitutional, it's illegal, you can't do that – uh, how do you, how does and, and John Roberts talked about this at a summit he was uh, speaking to recently and basically said, listen, if the legislature uh, d- doesn't follow what the uh, Supreme Court, what our federal courts are are telling them, then our, our system is broken and uh, we cannot possibly succeed as a society. Um, how do you get these universities? to actually obey the decisions that the Supreme Court would make. Yeah, well, there's no question that universities and businesses and whatnot will often try to play hide the ball. One thing they're already doing, because I think they anticipate that they may lose this case, is they're doing things like, you know, we're not going to use standardized test scores anymore. We're just going to evaluate, you know, people's essays that they that they submit. Oh, uh, they come up with coded language that makes it yeah. makes it work, but they don't want to have a system in which African-American students score badly on these scores, but they get admitted over Asian applicants who score dramatically better than they do uh, on these uh, on these tests. So they will find ways to try to game the system to achieve the same result, but it'll be a lot tougher, uh, and there will be challengers out there who will say that this is really just a ruse. By the way, I want to give uh, the Heritage Foundation a plug. You all are going to have a special event. I wouldn't be surprised if you're involved in this next, uh, I believe it's next Tuesday, a, a preview yeah. of the Supreme Court. And uh, listeners can go to heritage.org forward slash courts forward slash events and sign up for this. I think, what is it, a one-hour forum in which you're going to be discussing things in more detail that we've talked about today. Yeah, no, that's right. With former U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement, who's argued over 100 cases in front of the Supreme Court, and a former acting U.S. Solicitor General Jeff Wall, very talented lawyers, also argued dozens of cases in front of the Supreme Court. My colleague Zach Smith will be moderating that, and people can uh, watch a live stream of it. Or if they can't, for whatever reason, they can go a day afterwards and get the event. 
I signed, I, I signed up today. By the way, John, go look up Lamprecht versus the FCC. Talk about discrimination courses. That's my 30 seconds of fame before Clarence Thomas back when he was on the D.C. circuit. I'll do it. John, thanks for your time. I do appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you again in my the future. Pleasure, okay. All right. Bye-bye.